Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights for making money in food. The Edible Alpha podcast is hosted by the Food Finance Institute, where our mission is to help food businesses raise the money they need to grow. Through our podcast, FFI staff talks to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food or farm business. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast. I'm Andy Larson, farm finance consultant for the Food Finance Institute and also Wisconsin Small Business Development Centers. I'm so excited to be here with the Simple Goodness Sisters, Venice Cunningham and Belinda Kelly. Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast, you two. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. We're excited. So working as a farm finance consultant in Wisconsin, I've actually spoken with syrup entrepreneurs before, okay? But those were generally farmers that were, you know, tapping a sugar bush for maple sugar products. Tell us about simple goodness syrups. How did they come about and what are the types of things that they can be used for? Yeah, so we make simple syrups. So simple syrups are generally used for cocktails, but you can make a lot of other things with them. So mocktails, sodas, you can use them in desserts. Um, some people do put our syrups on breakfast items, similar to a maple syrup. Nice. <laughs> um, and we are an herb and an edible flower farm. And so the we're using our herbs in our syrups, um, along with other ingredients that we get from other local farms. So a lot of our syrups are berry-based, or we make a rhubarb, vanilla bean syrup, um, and they are a mix of a lot of different elements of the farm and then pure cane sugar um, and we use organic cane sugar and then water. So it's pretty simple, hence the name, um, but you can use them for a lot of different things. So most uh, businesses I talk to have a bit of an origin story of their, of their business and of their products. Tell us a little bit about your origin story. How did Simple Goodness Syrups and Simple Goodness Sisters as a brand come about? Sure. So uh, we always joke that you could start in 1988 when I was born because then we became <laughs> sisters. But um, fast forwarding, we both were actually working corporate jobs in the Seattle area at various tech companies. And we come from a family of family businesses and always kind of knew that that was a direction we'd want to go. Um, when we had our first kids, you know, having children really changes your priorities and puts a lot of things in perspective and kind of accelerated that uh, plan for us. So I ended up leaving my job at Microsoft and opening a mobile bar company. We were basically a food truck that was a bar. So we would travel around and um, people are more familiar with these these days. But when I started this seven years ago, I was one of the first like three in the country. They were done in the UK more. And um I decided that if I was going to, you know, leave my cushy job and all of that, that I was going to do exactly <laughs> what I wanted to do, which was not only a mobile bar company, but one that served really fun seasonal drinks, um, something that you would get at a craft cocktail bar just on the go. And so when I was putting together that menu, I developed these syrups and fun combinations that made it so that our drinks were easy to pour on the go and really delicious. And um, Ah, okay. So a convenience element there too. There was definitely a convenience element because one of the problems we had at the start too was that we didn't have our liquor license. We actually served alcohol that was provided to us from our clients. And so sometimes that alcohol was 
pretty terrible quality. So we were kind of <laughs> trying to make like one secret sauce that would overcome all of the situations we found ourselves in, like a wedding on the side of a mountain with really cheap vodka. How do we make that taste good? So um, these syrups kind of came out of that. And our first syrup flavors um, were the ones that were just the most popular at those events. So in a way, we also did like market testing for years through the event business. And at our very first event that we were serving, uh, Venice actually helped me out. She was being um, my ice girl for the day, hauling ice between the bar and uh, the barn that we were at. And she noticed that people were asking how to recreate the drink at home. And at that point, she had already been elbowed by me to have some space in her garden to grow some herbs and edible flowers that I was having a hard time finding at our farmer's markets. Um, you know, edible flowers are one of those things that most farmers grow kind of coincidentally to like help their vegetable gardens, you know, with pollination and, uh, or maybe they're just growing wild at their farms, but they're not necessarily going to take the time to harvest them and bring them to market. So finding these in the quantities that I needed for like, you know, 500 garnishes for a night was challenging. So she was like, okay, people want this syrup. There's a demand for it as a retail item. And you are taking up space in my garden where I'm trying to grow garlic. So if you're going to do that, we have to use these, you know, for more than just what you're doing in a weekend at a wedding, we need to produce an actual product. And so that was really her idea. And then she spent um, a little while convincing me and even made a fake business plan with fake numbers uh, to try to convince me because at that point I was so overwhelmed from the first business. But um, that's really how we got started was creating a product that made sense for like on the go craft cocktails to make them taste really delicious and seasonal. And uh, then launching that product, we just went from there on building that brand. I'm going to tell you a secret. Most business plans are full of made up numbers. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's why we haven't bothered to write another one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So um, how did the production element start? How did you develop the first recipes and get yourself into your first kind of suite of products that you were going to make into a business? So we launched the business with three core flavors, and it was rhubarb vanilla bean, huckleberry spruce tip, and marionberry mint. And Belinda is our recipe um, developer, and so I'll let her talk a little bit more about how she goes into the recipe development. Um, But a lot of it really comes down to what I can grow on the farm and also what we're seeing out on other farms. So I don't grow berries um, or any kinds of fruits. And the way our syrups are preserved is based on pH. And so we start from there. We don't add any preservatives to our syrups. And so our syrups have to hit a certain pH in order to be shelf stable. Got it. So um, we start with looking at different flavor combinations that are going to hit the pH that we need. And then we go from there. And so Marionberry Mint, um, Marionberry berries naturally hit the pH that we need. And so all we needed to do was add an herbal component from our farm. And so we kind of look at what's growing on the farm, what I think I can scale to a certain point, 
um, to be able to meet the demand and then, and then how well I can grow it. And so mint is very easy to grow. So it was an mm-hmm. easy one to start with. Um, sure. Huckleberry spruce tip, we're in the Pacific Northwest and huckleberries grow wild around here. Almost no one farms them. I don't know of a, of a farm that's farming huckleberries. Most of them are wild foraged and they are relatively easy to get here, although they are very, very seasonal. Um, and then spruce tips are grown um, just naturally. We have a couple spruce chip tip. We have a couple of spruce trees here on the farm. And so that is more of a timing issue and less of a, a growing issue. But um, that one was just one that was like completely Pacific Northwest. We grew up foraging huckleberries in the mountains with our grandparents. And it's something cool. that we really wanted to do. And then uh, rhubarb vanilla bean, uh, we our farm is just up the hill from um, a large valley that grows a lot of berries. And we are actually, our county is the fresh rhubarb capital of the world. So we grow more fresh rhubarb in our little valley than anywhere else. And so, wow. um, yeah. And so that was kind of a natural, it's easy to get. I grow the rhubarb on our farm, but if we're ever short, we knew that we could scale and always get rhubarb from the farms around us. Um, so being able to source really super locally is really important to us. Um, some of our other flavors, we've now, we have a lot of different flavors and we okay. have recently la- launched um, a subscription box, which we call Cocktail Farm Club. And so those flavors are really influenced by um, the season, what we can get in the season. And then also we like to try to find um, farms that have extras of something and they're looking for a use for it. So similar to um, kind of edible flowers and a lot of people are growing them, but not necessarily marketing them. Um, Mm -hmm. Here's a good example. We have a farm that we buy our blueberries from. And when I was picking up blueberries, I was like, Hey, you have this giant, like heirloom plum tree. What do you do with the plums? And they're like, Oh, well, we don't do anything with them, you know, cause we're a blueberry farm. <laughs> and so all of these <laughs> plums were going to waste. And I was like, well, what if I buy some of the plums off of you? And she's like, yeah, that'd be great. You know, it's, it's something that I was like, I'll come and harvest them and, um, and just grab them. And she's like, Perfect. And so we did a plum uh, time syrup with some of those plums. So a lot of it is opportunity and then and what we have. So similarly in our on our own farm, we'll have like a bumper crop of basil. And so it's like, okay, what can we mix with basil to hit the pH that we need um, and make a flavor that tastes great? And getting to from the point of just having good recipes to actually producing for the first time when we launched was was a huge thing. And again, Venice was all over that and researching where to go and which co-packers would allow us to do smaller runs. Because, um, you know, we at first we're really dipping our toes. We were like, we're going to do maybe a thousand bottles, see if they sell, take it from there. That's really all I was willing to commit to at the time. And (laughs) and we weren't, you know, starting with a bunch of seed money and having this whole plan of scaling in the next five years. Like it was very much not that. So (laughs) right. It's a make your mistakes small, fast and cheap, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I, you know, I knew how to produce the syrups in a five gallon batch in my kitchen. Um, 
So I, I kind of knew how I would make need to make the re- recipes go, but we ended up finding a co-packer in Oregon, about a six-hour drive from us. And okay. I already had a cargo trailer for the mobile bar business. So we loaded it up with all of our bottles, uh, which we bought locally that first time. Um, all of our, you know, produce in big coolers. And we just drove down to Oregon and met these folks who did a great, they were actually a, a jam company that had a production facility on their farm that they started co-packing for others. So they were willing to do a smaller batch for us that first time. And we learned so much, like we got there and they're like, uh, yeah, so these recipes are terrible. Um, <laughs> <won't work." laughs> like you've clearly never produced at scale before. And so we're like frantically trying to do math, um, that we hadn't done since like the eighth grade, you know, uh, <laughs> solve for X. If we, if we have this much water and this many berries, how much, you know, mint do we need? Um, and we had <laughs> you had like time. junior high story problems that you're having to solve. <laughs> exactly. We were literally joking that we owed so much to our high school math teachers in that moment. And, <laughs> It was just uh, pretty stressful that day because the way you infuse something in, you know, I think our first batch was 50 gallons maybe. So the way you infuse something in 50 gallons is very different than the way you infuse something in a smaller batch where you have the ability to, you know, let things come to a boil. You can let things um, actually like thicken, you know, and reduce on a stovetop and you cannot do that in a 50 gallon kettle. So there's sure. a lot of adjustments that have to be made, and we've been learning all of those ever since. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so th- this is a, uh, it's actually a really neat example. We do regularly recommend that people, you know, get in with a co-packer if they have the volume to do so, because then they're not having to invest in all of that infrastructure up front and then service the debt related to building that infrastructure and everything too. But I'm curious, like, so as you've gone from, you know, three recipes in your home kitchen on up to using a, you know, a co-packing facility, you know, a, a state away, are you guys still experimenting with the, the, the small recipes and trying to add more, uh, skews to your 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 regular lineup of syrups, or do you just have a um, a stable of however many SKUs that are going to be sort of the the foundational um, products for your business going forward? Yeah, when we think about our business and flavors, we kind of think about them in three different buckets. Okay. Um, but to answer your initial question, we have five core SKUs. And those SKUs we try to keep in stock year round. And okay. so and so those ones have been selected based on their year round availability and um, whether or not I think that I can get them either straight from the farm or if I absolutely need to because we are out during our busy season. It's been really hard, especially with the pandemic, to uh, forecast our sales. And so sometimes sure. we have come up short. And so then it's like, okay, I need to get berries and I need, I might need to buy them from a distributor. We try as hard as we can to buy direct from the farm. And even when we buy from the distributor, um, usually we have been able to find a farm that will keep their farm label on so that I still know where they're coming from, even if I'm buying from a distributor. But berries in particular are frozen. Like we have to buy them frozen when they're out of season. And so usually the farm is then selling to a distributor and then that distributor is holding them and freezing them. But 
um, back to the original question. So we have our kind of three buckets. We have our retail and that is on our website. And so those are where we try to keep our five core flavors in stock. Then we have wholesale and our wholesale, when we started with wholesale, we decided we were going to dip our toes into wholesale and just offer two SKUs. Um, and that, that worked well. Now our wholesale strategy has changed a little bit and we are focusing way less on grocery and far more on boutique and gift shops and other small businesses. And so for those um, wholesalers, we can order, we can offer our five core flavors because they're typically ordering less. They're not ordering like a whole pallet at a time. They're ordering a couple of cases. Um, and then we have our cocktail farm club. And so our cocktail farm club is our subscription box. We ship it every other month. And there are two syrups. There is one of our core flavors. And then there is a special release flavor. And that is a flavor that we only produce for Cocktail Farm Club. We produce it once and then we're done. And so the only way that you can get that flavor is by being a member of Cocktail Farm Club. Ah, so the yeah, benefits so of being a of, member. Yeah, it creates a little bit of demand. It also allows us to be... Um, a lot more flexible in where we're sourcing. So again, like I can source, for example, our November, our last November um, seasonal flavor was fig cardamom. Fig is really hard for me to source in any way other than seasonally. Um, figs don't last very long. And so it was really cool because we got to partner with a really small farm. Like they're they're just a couple of acres and they don't do any sort of wholesale business, but she was a friend of mine and she has this giant fig tree. And so we could source those figs directly from her farm. Um, and because I knew I only had to make enough bottles to cover our member base. So it's a fun way for us to be able to experiment. And it's a fun, um, our members get really excited about what flavor is coming because oftentimes we don't even know until, <laughs> you know, shortly before we launch. Cool. Okay. So that, that kind of um, that small production run for like a very seasonal flavor or something like that. Does that still get done through the co-packer at volume or are you guys producing that yourselves? So that's been interesting. Our relationship with a co-packer has been a very like evolving thing. And like you mentioned, a lot of people will start like in their garage or something and then move to a co-packer when they feel like they're big enough. We went to a co-packer right away because we were looking for, Number one, their ex expertise. Number two, like renting their equipment, basically. And um, doing those larger batches was a lot more efficient for us when this was just one of our side hustles. We were actually, Venice was still working at the beginning um, full time. And then I had my bar business. And so it just was a lot more efficient. We then went through the process of getting certified to actually be able to produce smaller batches in our own kitchen. Um, and that kind of leads into what we haven't talked about yet, which is our uh, brick and mortar. So we do have a um, piece of real estate in a town about four miles down the road from the farm where we are now able to have a kitchen and produce and then have a tasting room. So we could do batches of like 200 syrups in a day in that little kitchen. It is very manual. <laughs> it is very <laughs> old school, your grandma canning at the stove kind of a process. And so it's not analog. <laughs> yeah. Very so really when, now that our farm club base uh, 
thanks be to God, has grown so much, we are now actually able to do those batches at our co-packer as well because we can do a whole kettle full um, now with our membership base. So it's a little bit of both. And the lovely thing is that we now have the skills, the expertise, and the, and the certified space where we can do it either way. So if we end up being like short because some big, we've had amazing press opportunities and you never know when those are going to hit. And so, you know, last year we were on Rachel Ray right before the holidays and that did a number on our sales, which was fantastic. But yes. like Vinny mentioned for forecasting, you don't know if all of a sudden you're going to need 200 more bottles for a farm club that ships in three weeks. And so we have the ability <laughs> to still produce that in our kitchen if we did, you know, 300 at the co-packer and now we need more. So that flexibility is really nice. Um, and we're actually looking to build that out more now. Now we're at a place where we want to put in a little nicer equipment, a bigger kettle, um, and we're finally building our own production space at our soda shop, which is our, our retail restaurant. I'll add also that when it comes to co-packers, um, we, we are no longer going to Oregon anymore, so a state away. We did move. So once we, we did our very first run, in Oregon and realized it was great. We learned so much, but realized really fast, like that was not sustainable because, you know, <laughs> six because, hours is a haul. <laughs> yeah. And because it was always going to be really important that the stuff came from our farm, it was going to be shipping our stuff down there. And that is a challenge, especially, I mean, now I just looking back, I'm like, it never would have worked. Um, <laughs> but, and so we were able to find, co-packers are really hard to find, especially small scale ones. They are, they oftentimes don't have websites. Like you really have to kind of have, it's all about networking. And so luckily I was able to find one co-packer that had a website and then, but they were closing, but then he was like, I know this other one. And so it was really at making a lot of phone calls and finding yeah. a lot of times it's other food manufacturers. So, um, like there's a pickle place and they have offered to co-pack for us. And it's all about like whether or not the equipment is the same, but now we have a co-packer that's only like an hour and a half away and they are small scale. So they work with a lot of small emerging brands. Um, and that's been awesome, but like Belinda said, like we are at a place now where we are outgrowing our co-packer. So we're taking up a little bit too much of his time and they're just struggling <laughs> to keep up and, you know, still bottle for all of his other customers. Um, and so it's pretty apparent now that like we need our own production space. So that is like our big to do this year. <laughs> okay. And your own production space. So instead of finding a, a larger capacity co-packer, you guys want to start owning that infrastructure. Yeah. Because once you go into a larger capacity co-packer, um, we would still not be able to do our seasonal runs because ah. we don't have the demand for that. And so we could go to a larger co-packer for our core flavors and that may be something that we need to do in the future but because we really are loving cocktail farm club and are focusing on growing that for a multitude of reasons um being able to produce our cocktail farm club in-house and at scale is going to be huge and so basically it's a really nice like happy medium because when you, what our product is very different than anything else that our current co-packer does or any of the other co-packers around us that we've talked to do. So there's this huge like 
learning process when you're working with a new co-packer of them learning your recipe and what it should be like. And it's, it was a very manual process for us last time we were there during the production runs every time, even though they were technically responsible for them, we were there overseeing it. And so to us, it's like, we're going to invest that time that we would be spending doing that in our own shop with our own employees. Cause we've also got to this place now where we have part-time employees and we would love to keep them on and not have to train new people constantly. So how can we keep somebody working in a full-time role year round and owning some of our own production is, is going to be a nice way to do that. And then maintaining our relationship with our current co-packers so that when we need batches, we can, but that we're leaning, we're taking up a lot less of their calendar. That's a big moment in the trajectory of a business. First, it's getting your first employee or employees. And then second, it's how do I keep them on full-time year round? So that, yeah, some really, really interesting, you know, growth points along your trajectory that you guys are facing. Um, so your your business, I mean, just from the, the short time that we've talked so far, it's obviously your, your, your brand and your business consists of a lot of different moving parts. You've got the cocktail farm, you've got syrup production, both locally and co-packer, you've got e-commerce and order fulfillment that's going through the buying club, um, you've got a physical location, uh, the soda shop in Wilkinson, Washington, well, let's let's talk about the physical plant. Let's talk about physical location for just a minute. Um, where is Wilkeson, Washington? How did you decide to locate your business there? Um, and importantly, you described this soda shop as an off-farm agritourism destination. I, I love that terminology, and I want you to tell me a little bit more about what that means. Yeah, so the soda shop is essentially our tasting room. So we like to think about it like a brewery or a distillery um, or a winery where you can come and you can taste the wines and you can experience, um, you know, all the different parts of the winery. Unfortunately, I, well, I guess, fortunately, I love living on my farm. <laughs> and so it was <laughs> one of those things where we wanted people to be able to experience our brand in person rather than just online. But I also didn't want a bunch of strangers showing up at my farm at all hours <laughs> of Understood. the day. <laughs> and so the soda shop became that opportunity. So we are located in Wilkeson, Washington, which is um, one of the entrance towns to Mount Rainier. So it's awesome because we have a lot of people who are visiting from out of town or um, outside of like the very local area. So we get a lot of people from Seattle who are coming for day hikes. Um, it's a small town. So town total has about 550 people in it. There is about eight commercial buildings in the whole town. So wow. um, yeah, but some of the other buildings and business owners are also really into food. And so it's a really cool spot to be. Um, and we bought it years ago, not knowing exactly what it would become. But uh, my other hat that I wear, this is Denise, is um, I'm a real estate agent. And so I saw it and I was like, this is just such a cool old building. And I think that we should buy it. Knowing that... I always wanted a farm business and I knew our local health department and WSDA laws enough to know that um, being on a septic and a well would always make it very difficult for me to have a thriving agritourism 
business that result revolved around food. Um, we WSDA really, being the Washington State Department of Agriculture, correct? Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, we have some really strict, especially in our county, because we're a very populated county, um, some really strict health department rules, especially when it comes to being on wells and septics. And so we were going to have to upgrade our infrastructure a lot in order to be able to do anything on the farm. And so instead, it seemed much easier to find something that was on city water and city sewer. <laughs> and so that's essentially what we did. And then um, and then I'm going to let Belinda talk a little bit about the soda shop because uh, we also try to split our roles a little bit. And so I can talk a little bit about that really quick. But um, I do a lot of the farming um, and I do most of the shipping and a lot of the e-commerce stuff. And then Belinda does most of the soda shop management and then all of the recipe development and all of our like special events. And then she helps me with like all of our promotions, all of that, like the marketing side of things we do together because we both really enjoy it. Got it. Yeah. So the soda shop uh, started as this concept of off farm agritourism, somewhere you could taste. We love, you know, visiting farm-based businesses and, and experiencing those. And we wanted to be able to taste our syrups in the way that we developed them, which was cocktails. But we also at this point had a couple of young kids and we thought it was pretty silly the way that you could go to a brewery and bring your kids and have this very like family-friendly environment with around here, there's a lot of like games and food trucks and it's just definitely like a family spot, whereas no bars are like that. Um, bars sure. are, you know, dark with neon and uh, no <laughs> windows. And and we were like, you know, it'd be really nice to still be able to go out and get a good cocktail and have, but have it be an environment that's more approachable and more family friendly. So that was what we wanted. And then the health department and liquor board came in and said, cool, then you have to be a restaurant. So now all of a sudden uh, we were restaurateurs, which we never wanted to be. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We, I mean, we scoured the liquor law types trying to find a loophole in like, um, <laughs> can like I just sell a fraternal chips? organization? <laughs> could, you know, could we be a nightclub? I mean, we were glowing through everything. We were like, oh, snack bar. Snack bar is going to be the key. You can be a snack bar, but it had to be canned beer and wine. So we're like, okay, do we just serve like um, canned wine cocktails? But no, you can't even add anything to them when you do that. So, I mean, we went, we were all over the place. Um, but yeah, we're a restaurant. So then it was like, all right, here we come with a food menu. And um, <laughs> having had a catering, a cocktail catering business before, because when I say that I was like a, a bar on wheels, that's not legal to just, you know, pull up. Everyone wants them to pull up in your neighborhood and have margaritas on Taco Tuesday, but that's completely illegal, at least in Washington state. And so what I actually did was mostly events, um, corporate events, weddings, things like that. And in order to do it legally, I actually also had to offer a food menu. Um, I made that food menu pretty expensive. So no one ever ordered it because I didn't want to cater. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, so this is all advice from our dad. He's like, you know, everyone wants me to offer screens at my door and window business. And I don't like making screens. So I do offer them, but they're twice as much as anywhere else. So I don't have to make them very often. Um, so yeah, we decided like, okay, we, 
we have to have a food menu. So I had kind of already been through similar loophole or, you know, red tape basically with these things as a caterer. And so I just started to formulate like a really easy to produce menu that we could make kind of subway style, you know? So we're like, cool, we're going to do sandwiches. Um, But at the same time, we knew it was really important to our brand story that when people came here, they ate food that, you know, felt good, tasted good, filled them up, was affordable, you know, all the things that we would want in a restaurant. And so Unfortunately, we couldn't just overcharge for the food and have no one order it like at a catered event. Here's a $47 grilled cheese. (laughs) Yeah, it'd have a much different experience in an in-person restaurant if you did that. So then we thought like, okay, how do we put kind of a farm to table spin on this so that seasonal, super delicious craft cocktails aren't completely at odds with like the microwave burritos we deserve. You know, (laughs) you have to like really find a balance between ease and like, and quality. So we decided to put together a sandwich menu that was all about condiments. So it, the kind of theme of our restaurant is like preserving. And, um, that's really what we had gotten into as, you know, young mothers and people with our first kitchens and gardens and trying to figure out like, okay, I grew a bunch of this. Now what do I do with it? So we had learned to pickle and make jams and things like that at home. And so that's, what we brought to the soda shop was this idea of farm fresh things that you put into, you know, pestos and chimichurri sauces and jalapeno plum jellies and, uh, you know, fresh pickles out of carrots or, you know, cucumbers. So that's where the food menu came from. And we also kind of had this idea that in the future, then those could be product extensions And so we've actually started to do that now at the soda shop as well, where some of our condiments have become available for sale. Um, But we put together this restaurant that's family friendly, has a full cocktail menu, a full non-alcoholic menu as well, which is really important to us. Um, But if you're sober or if you're underage, there's something equally exciting to drink. And then ice cream. So our building historically had been an ice cream shop. And actually, it was a condition of the purchase of the building that we would continue to serve ice cream. Um, we bought oh it from a, a, a 90-year-old man who had lived above the, his cafe for years and served ice cream and gave away free ice cream in town to kids who brought in a report cards. And, you know, that was having an impact on our local community and continuing the traditions of the building was also really important. So uh, we serve ice cream and we decided that a soda shop or kind of soda fountain was the menu that made sense and kind of brought together our whole concept of cocktails, ice cream, sandwiches. And it's uh, got a huge yard where you can play lawn games with your kids while you're drinking a really delicious blueberry lavender tequila spritz. And, uh, it's a destination that people have been really enjoying. It's also our retail spot. So in 2020, we opened the soda shop October 2020. And that's when, of course, most stores were closed and we didn't really have a lot of orders coming in wholesale. And so it was a really, really nice way to have a retail location for people to visit um, when farmers markets and other, you know, small businesses that we had been supplying our syrups to were closed. And so it's a good spot for us retail wise, as well as a way for people to taste the syrup and then in a drink and then take it home. And we found that that is really important for our product. And we could pay people to demo our product in grocery stores across the country, or we could just do it 
in this way. Okay. So two related questions. One, I assume that with the, the menu that you've got with, you know, a focus on condiments, a focus on beverages, a focus on ice cream, all of those different things can probably incorporate your syrup products too, correct? Definitely. Yeah. Excellent. So our, uh, our other thing that brings together our menu is things you put syrup on. Uh, sure. So we were like, okay, we're going to do like yogurt parfaits. We're going to do waffles. We're going to do ice cream. We're going to do cocktails. Um, and that has kind of dwindled as brand new restaurateurs. It's uh, probably not a huge surprise that we made a couple of big mistakes. Um, <laughs> and one of those was the waffle machine. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually just cut it for the final, the second and final time this week. Um, we've been trying to make waffles work on the menu and they don't. Uh, and we're just giving up on it. Um, they're really popular. They're like these really cute waffles on a stick, but they are horrible to make. What we've learned quickly as restaurant owners is anything that you have to prep or have a single piece of equipment for where it's only used in one menu item doesn't make sense and it should go. So gotcha. uh, anything gotcha. you prep should be able to use on like more than one thing or just be incredibly easy to prep. Um, and no equipment should only have one use and take up real estate in your very small kitchen. The unitaskers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. That makes good sense. So the other thing that you mentioned is opening up in 2020. So you have, uh, just give us a little bit more about the, the pandemic timeline. Did you already, like, was this already underway when you guys were getting started? And so you didn't have to, like, pivot midstream? Or did you have to, did you have to do a lot of fancy footwork and change what you were going to do as a result of, uh, you know, the pandemic and local regulations and how they were changing on a, you know, almost a week to week basis back then? Yeah, <laughs> good question. Um, so in January of 2020, we had just gone to our first like fancy food show. It was the first time we had ever entered into a food show, but also into like a food competition. And okay. one of our syrups, the rhubarb vanilla bean was, it was the good, it's the good food show. Um, and it are one of our syrups, the rhubarb vanilla bean. Um, it was a runner up as a finalist. So it was very exciting. Cool. And then it was the first time we had, had in, was involved in a trade show. So mm -hmm. where buyers could come. And so we had a lot of really great response from that, especially from distributors and a couple of, um, big grocery stores. And so we were really excited about that going into 2020. Um, and we were really, you know, getting our label set. You know, there's a lot of different labeling things that you need when you go into a grocery store versus just selling off of your website. So we were doing all of that behind the scenes work, getting ready to like start pitching to these wholesale accounts. Mm -hmm. And then of course the pandemic hit around March and you saw everyone buy toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I remember. Lot, but it's true. All of the buyers were panicking and trying to keep meat and toilet paper and all of the staples on the shelves, and they did not give two cares about putting a new simple <laughs> syrup on the cocktail shelves. And you so weren't selling them sudden, in like fifty-five gallon drums or anything that people could hoard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so all of a sudden, we were like crap, that is not going to be a good direction for us to go in 2020. 
Now, in terms of the soda shop, we had been working on the soda shop for over a year and our target like opening date, again, we're a seasonal. So we, um, our town is very busy May through like October, but then okay. our syrups are very giftable. And so we are very busy October through Christmas. So we kind of figured uh, we'll be open sure. May through December. Um, will be our season. And so we were like, all right, May 2020, we're going to open. It'll be our grand opening. Well, (laughs) May 2020 is for a grand opening, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah. May 2020 is literally like March is when, so in Washington, we had one, some of the first like deaths from COVID. Um, And so our state was one of the first to like really get scared and really shut down. And so as early as April, we started to see the writing on the wall that like this was not um, probably going to happen. But we were still like hopeful. We're very, very um, optimistic people in general. And so we're like, it'll, it'll be fine. We're just going to like flatten the curve two weeks. We're going to stay home and we're going to bake bread and then we're going to open our soda shop. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And of course that didn't happen. Our health department um, is the one who has to come and do the final inspection to let you open. And the health department was very, very busy. All of their resources had been from the food side had been pulled over to the pandemic. And so there was no no one even available to do an inspection. Um, All of the contractors were staying home. So we had like those last minute contractor things and nobody was going to show up. Um, And so it became very clear we were not meeting that deadline. And so then we set a new deadline and it was going to be July. And then that became clear that we weren't going to meet that deadline. And so after July, we decided we weren't making any more deadlines for ourselves because we were just (laughs) doing that. That's one way to achieve expectations is to just remove them. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, you know, there's just certain things we can't control. And so we had at that point, we had all of our applications in and we were just waiting for those final inspections. Um, And so those final inspections finally came in September and we got, we set to open on my birthday, which is actually October 8th. And at that point at October 8th, we only had a couple of weeks until it was Christmas (laughs) and then we were supposed to close. (laughs) And so it was like, literally do we open for 10 weeks because that's the max that we would be open for. And so we had to decide like, is it worth it to open for the 10 weeks? Um, And we ultimately decided yes. Also, like it was impossible to get staff. um, Not only because of the pandemic, but also because it's like, hey, do you want to come work for us for 10 weeks? (laughs) Um, God, double whammy. Yeah. And so we just opened and we worked it ourselves and we worked our freaking butts off. Um, (laughs) It's definitely the hardest part to date. And I, kind of hope forever. Um, I hope that we look back on that time and we're like, that was awful. And just the fact that we got through that is a testament to um, our determination to make it work because uh, yes, the laws were changing or the rules and regulations around restaurants were changing weekly. And so we like to say that we got very dizzy from pivoting. We pivoted (laughs) every single week. There was a new like, okay, now you have to contact Trace and you're going to have to check everyone in or like you have to wear a mask. No, you don't. You can have six people in. No, you can have 12. Like actually you can only have outdoor seating. Like it was so many changes. Um, 
And we couldn't keep up. Our customers couldn't keep up. So, and then I think the other hard thing about opening was like, we were, we ended up having to open a restaurant that looked very different from what our plans were. Um, We, you know, we had opened with this idea that like we would have people that would come and play games and like hang out and it'd be a community gathering point. And really like our whole first year was to go only. So we were more like a fast food chain, you know? Um, And the hard part of that is that we're still trying to pivot from that because even though we've been open for two years, like getting ourselves and our staff and our kitchen, but then also our customers used to this new idea of a restaurant that like when they were introduced to us, we felt more like a grab and go spot to a place where they, we want them to come and sit and hang out and enjoy themselves has definitely been a transition. Mm. Unlike other restaurants who it's like everyone knew what they were and then they realized like, Oh, they're just, they've had to change, but they'll go back to the way they were before our customers didn't have an idea of what we were before. And so we're like still kind of trying to reinvent ourselves. A new first impression is required. Yeah. Yeah. People come in with this expectation still that it's going to be like a a sandwich they get in 15 minutes instead of like, no, this is a restaurant. You sit down, you have a drink, then your sandwich comes to your table. Like you enjoy it. You know, it's a very different dining style and, I don't, we never could have anticipated that problem. I don't think we just thought, okay, we'll put the normal stuff back on the menu. We'll put the things we want back on the menu that aren't to go friendly that we couldn't have yet. We'll put those on and then people will get it and everyone will just go along. But it's like, we've essentially opened a second restaurant two years later. Oh my gosh. So interesting. So many changes that you guys have faced. Well, I'm assuming that the, the pandemic is also what kind of spurred this idea behind the uh the cocktail farm club correct is that actually no sorry no No. interesting yeah (laughs) no and that's the great thing about it is that people started having that idea and then to actually get something to from like production from idea to production to on a shelf is usually like a six months to a year long process so if we had only thought of cocktail farm club during the pandemic it would have been incredibly hard to launch luckily we had the idea and a lot of the groundwork done before the pandemic, that idea came from Venice just recognizing a need for some kind of a core membership for cash flow. We actually took a really good class um, that was uh, through. It was you guys, yeah. But what's the what's the like? <laughs> I think you're talking about the the farm finance or the 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 business finance boot camp through uh, Food Finance Institute. Exactly. That is it. The food finance uh, boot camp class that we took was like really huge for us in recognizing um, our strengths as a business, but also our weak points. And one of them was going to be always cash flow. If we just had these skew, like core SKUs that we sold and we sold them wholesale and retail, our business was always going to be extremely heavy in Q4 and extremely light in Q1 and 2 when all of our production costs went out. So. Um, there was a cash flow issue that we were like, we need some way to bring in like a, a regular predictable income. And then there was also this issue of having opportunity to make new flavors because we've got like a surplus, but 
we had realized by then how hard it is to like make a new label and launch a new label and market a new product and then get that product into a store. And so being able to have new products regularly, but an easier process of getting them to the customer um, was really what spurred Cocktail Farm Club. And that thankfully happened pre-pandemic so that it was actually able to be launched in 2021. Wow, I, that's some that you guys must be living right because holy mackerel, talk about a a wonderful, you know, coincidental alignment of things. Like, thank goodness that that could just go out the door immediately when it had to. That's awesome. Um, I'm curious also uh, who is joining the Cocktail Farm Club. Um, like, do you have a, a a typical set like of archetypes of customer segments that are are joining your cocktail farm club or is it a pretty wide swath of people? Um, tell me about your customers a little bit. I think we could have predicted some of them and then some have been complete surprises. Okay. <laughs> um, so we initially launched the first three flavors in 2018 and cocktail farm club came around in 2021. So by then we'd had time to really, you know, start to grow our business and have a customer base. And so the first people to join cocktail farm club, our first hundred people were definitely just our biggest fans people who had followed us, you know, pretty seriously through the process of building the company on social media. We're big on Instagram. Um, not like we're a big deal on Instagram because we're not, I just mean we're on it all the time. <laughs> we like to share the behind the scenes and, um, kind of have this community feeling online. And so those people joined for sure. Um, but there was definitely a, a point of transition that happened in our business. Benice and her daughter actually put a map in the shipping room and they would chart every time a new state was reached. Um, and we filled all 50 states. And that was a big moment where we realized we weren't just local, that our kind of direct-to-consumer focus had been paying off, that you mm -hmm. know, reaching people through social media or through different PR opportunities like farm podcasts. Um, we actually gained a lot of customers in kind of traditional farming communities or areas of the country, like the Midwest um, and uh, the Southwest too. We grew a lot from some of the program. We were on um, RFD TV on, sure. uh, um, on Farm Her, and that was a big one. Um, but the people who joined Farm Club, the Cocktail Farm Club, are people who either just already loved our syrups and want new flavors and like whatever, you know, have a, a sense of trust established, having liked so many of our things before that they're like, whatever you put out, I want it. Um, and then there's also people, <laughs> which is great, right? That's, we would Yeah, love that's the kind of customer to have. Yeah, best customers, love them. Take um, my money. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> we also have people who are gifting it a lot, which is really fun because it can be canceled at any time. Um, it's not okay. like, you know, the gym memberships of the 1990s where you're stuck for three years. You can just <laughs> gift it and cancel it at any time. And so we have people who do that a lot. During the pandemic, that was happening a lot too. I think people were really looking for a way to connect with people in other, you know, states or even cities or maybe their family members who were, you know, immunocompromised or for whatever reason, staying home more. And so they would, you know, just send them a little pick me up. And our boxes did quite a lot of that like work over the pandemic, which was fun to see. Uh, also families who use it as a way to connect. We have like sisters who do happy hour. Um, every time their box arrives, they plan like a virtual happy hour because they live in different states. And that's really fun. Nice. And then people who 
maybe like um, it's parents and kids, or maybe it's one person's a drinker and one's not in a partnership. And so they'll just, you know, use it as a way to like, okay, we'll make family cocktails and mocktails nights and have movies. Um, you know, that's kind of a, a fun one too. Sure, you're becoming part of a family tradition. Yeah, and when we set out, it was definitely like our target market or who we were initially advertising to were the families. So they were essentially us. <laughs> we created a target market or we created a product that we would like um, and that we would buy. <laughs> it's easy to do your market our, research that way. <laughs> yeah, and what, that our friends would buy. And so it was really folks like us who we love going out to the bar we like having a really delicious cocktail, but we now have families. And mm -hmm. for us also, like we live outside of an area that has craft cocktail bars. Like we have dive bars <laughs> and we have, you know, but we don't. And we love them. And we love them and we go out to them. But, um, and so it's like, and now to go out to a bar like that, it's, you know, you have to get a sitter and it's a real event. And so... Um, I hear you. I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> so this allows folks to kind of have that same experience and but do it at home, which was very helpful during the pandemic because nobody was going to those bars during the pandemic, but then also like share it with their family. And so that's more of what we're seeing now. And it's not just folks with kids it's either. We actually have quite a few folks who are like above the age of 50 um, and even 60 who are just enjoying like having those cocktails and, and for them it's more of an experience so in cocktail farm club you get um three different recipe cards so you get to like sit on a friday and like try a different recipe so it's a lot like baking um and then in an activity and then we also do host a like virtual happy hour and so we talk about uh where everything comes from. We talk about what's going on on the farm. And then Belinda walks everyone through making a fourth recipe. And we all make a drink together and we kind of like get to know each other. And so that's been really fun for a lot of people who still aren't going out um, as much anymore for a variety of different reasons. So that's a perfect little like interpersonal relationship development plus a value add with the additional recipe. Brilliant, you guys. I love it. I love it. How has that been growing? Like, how has the cocktail farm been doing? You said it's sort of your foundational cash flow for the business. Has it has that come to fruition? Is it enough people that you're using it for your foundational cash flow? Yeah, I mean, going on one year, we've grown by about four and a half. So we're really excited about that. Um, awesome. We've definitely been promoting it as you know our 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 kind of top product to go out there and get um when we have pr opportunities and we grow by word of mouth as well of course people gifting it to their friends and um you know just enjoying it and loving it there's also subscriptions are 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 funny um a lot of, a lot of our business acumen comes from like shows like Shark Tank or listening to other podcasts and right like we knew there would be a uh, like a dropout rate to a subscription model right not you everyone bet. does it for years to come and so you're not only going to be building it but you're going to just be replacing the members that you lose because yep. they have a stockpile sure. or their financial situation changes or you know whatever reason they have for leaving farm club and so um, we knew that going in and it's been really interesting 
trying to like kind of see what those rates are and follow those numbers um, and then, you know, promote accordingly. But it is it is growing really well and really steadily and we're really happy with it. Uh, we've reached a huge milestone for us the other day um, with this last shipment, which is that uh, it took three UPS trucks picking up Cocktail Farm Club for it to go out the door. And so that was pretty fun. That's magical because all of a sudden UPS is now got a stake in this game too and they want to provide your shipping at a at an affordable rate in order to keep your business so that that's a, there's a whole bunch of benefits to that too yeah the united states postal service has been good to us so far and it's we USPS. it's usps and we have um one of the things we did for cocktail farm club and just we needed done in our business in general was a custom mailer um and they have been consistently the best pricing and other than you know uh, Christmas 2021, where I think most businesses had a really big drop kick rate on their yeah. uh, shipping. Uh, we've, we've done well with breakage and things. So yeah, we're really happy. Our, we've had um, a couple of classes and mentorships and things we've done. Uh, we try to do at least maybe one or two a year. Um, in addition to the food finance boot camp, we are um, members of the um, Five Marys Entrepreneur Community. Okay. And we also did a retail ready class, uh, which is offered through Alley Ball in San Francisco. And it's, it's a virtual class when we were getting ready for wholesale. Um, and um, just mention it because we really enjoyed both of those things. But the thing about the Five Marys one is that uh, Mary's FedEx plane is our next goal. So that, that's what we're, you know, really <laughs> hoping for <laughs> is that it takes a it takes a plane to pick up in the future. Awesome. Okay. So you guys are growing quickly and that's a, a wonderful problem to have, but like it takes money to grow quickly. And right at, we talk about money at the Food Finance Institute. So I would be remiss if I didn't, if I, if I let you go without asking you about how you are financing the, the startup and the growth of, um, well, of the Simple Goodness Sisters brand and multiple lines of business. Is this something that you have got investors? Do you have great relationships with banks? Do you have a bunch of grants? How is this taking shape for you on a financial standpoint? It is a little bit of everything. And um, I love that you talk about money on this show because I think it's the thing that is obviously the hardest thing about starting a business, um, but also the thing that a lot of other companies don't want to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. We have asked sometimes questions that get to money and have not <laughs> had anyone want to share. <laughs> and so it is something that <laughs> we like to try to share as much as we can. Um, so for the initial, like our first runs of the syrup, we paid for that out of pocket. Um, okay. And it was not a lot. It was, I, it was less than $5,000 each and we both put it in. Um, and, you know, and then with the idea that we would eventually hopefully pay ourselves back. <laughs> um, so that is how we financed like our very first run. Uh, again, since we grow a lot of it, it was really came down to sugar ingredients and then bottles and our co-packing and labels. Um, okay. And then after that, we so we did get a loan from a family member. Um, our grandma is lovely to purchase the soda shop. Um, it's obviously a real estate backed loan. So it was a little bit easier for her to say yes to because, sure. 
you know, she, uh, she owns, you know, the note. And so <laughs> if we default, she's actually made quite a bit of money on that now. <laughs> right on. Sure. That so was a good investment for her. <laughs> um, and then, uh, we have definitely grants have been huge. It's the biggest uh, benefit of having and using things that we grow on our own farm. Um, I, the farm in itself is an investment. So I own the farm, my husband and I, and just like we have so many fewer costs because we have a farm. Our farm used to be an old dairy farm. And so it actually has like three really big buildings. So we know that we have, uh, or that other businesses have costs that we don't have, such as storage. Like I can store quite a bit here and not have to pay a storage cost. Um, and so that's awesome. Um, and it's a reason everyone should go buy a farm if they can. Um, and then we have definitely gotten, so we got our first big USDA grant, uh, last year. It was a marketing grant, so it doesn't pay for any of our hard costs, but it pays for some of our marketing stuff, which then the idea is that hopefully the marketing helps you actually get new customers and then you right. can pay for your hard costs out of that money. And it, and it was, we spent most of that money on a new website, which websites are very expensive. We did yes. all of our own website work up until that point but we had a bunch of different websites so we had like a store website and then a blog website and then an about a farm website and so the idea behind that was to really aggregate it into one website so we weren't bouncing our customers and then consequently losing our customers in those bounces Absolutely. Um, and so we hired an e-commerce website team um, and they redid our website for us. And it was amazing. I will say like, as we've had to hire more and more vendors because of the grant, um, we have always kind of elected to hire people that we have known or worked with before. Um, okay. and I know that some people are afraid of that because, you know, you're mixing friendship and, um, business, but sure. for us, it's worked out really well because, our brand is very unique and every time we've hired somebody who doesn't know us personally or doesn't take the time to get to know us personally and more importantly, our story, it is very obvious in the work that they do. And so our website company was a friend that we knew um, and she's done really amazing work. Um, and then uh, what else? I think that, you know, it's just coming from the background that we do and from a family business, we believe in real estate. So that's a big risk we take, but you sure. can tell we haven't taken a lot of risks on things like equipment. Um, and uh, that's and coming like up. It sounds like in the first years, we just did everything ourselves. Um, right. So our kind of like business strategy is to be extremely scrappy and then we kind of have to convince ourselves to pay for things or buy things um and it's we're you say we're growing quickly it feels like because of that we've actually grown much more slowly um than a mm. lot of businesses because we came from the tech world you know and as far as like our our um jobs before this and so there it's like you convince someone that your app is a great idea. They give you millions of dollars. You rent space. You hire a bunch of people. You never 
reach profitability, right? Like that's the business model we had been watching for like six years previously. You flip it for a bazillion dollars before it ever becomes revenue positive, right? Yeah. Or you go bust and everyone just moves their desks <laughs> to the next startup down the street, right? Like that's kind of where we came from. And so for us doing it this way has felt really tedious and really slow at times, but um, mm. But we're, we've actually kind of put our eggs in a lot of baskets as well, as you noticed from the Cocktail Farm Club and the Soda Shop. And while all of those things come with costs, if you can keep all of those balls in the air, like juggling metaphor, you mm -hmm. also have cash flow or revenue coming from each of those things. So the Soda Shop, while it was extremely high maintenance in the first year and a half and, and continues to be a huge part of our workload each week, it's another really great sense, uh, source of revenue. Um, and it is, you know, restaurants don't make a ton of money, but it's pretty predictable what our margins are there and it's pretty predictable our flow through there. And so we're getting a lot better with our cash flow because of Cocktail Farm Club and the soda shop. But, uh, buying most of your ingredients. Oh, I'm we, sorry. Right. We don't have any loans. We have not gotten to the place where we're ready to take out a loan yet. I think we're okay. both a little bit afraid of loans. We know that eventually we'll get there. But um, and then the other thing is that we don't have any investors other than ourselves. And like Belinda said, a lot of our own time. I will also say that we have not paid ourselves. Oh, yeah, that's a big <laughs> ah, great so, point. Um, and so the investment, we are definitely our own investors in the sense that both of our husbands have off farm jobs and we live a very simple life so that we can exist on one uh, wage earner in the family. Um, but, and that was, it's not that we couldn't, I think it's important to say that it's not that we couldn't have paid ourselves. It's that we have chosen to reinvest in our business. So in it, I guess in theory, we've paid ourselves and then just reinvested it. Um, and part of that is because a lot of that reinvestment has gone into our building because again, the real estate investment is a pretty solid one for us in our area. And we know that um, eventually that building will be ours. And so it's a, it's a safe reinvestment for us that we both feel comfortable taking. Yeah, rather than take a small salary each year for like three years, we're kind of just dumping it all back in for the first three years. And then, you know, with the, with that rough business plan in our head with made up numbers, knowing <laughs> that at the end of this three years, we've got a good payoff coming. And we also very much don't believe in like, just, you know, leave your job and, and the safety net will appear. We've both worked other jobs this whole time. In addition to our husbands, um, I, mm -hmm. you know, I had the happy camper mobile bar and then I sold that. So that kind of floated me for a while. And Venice is still a real estate agent. So we are more willing to put in extra time and be creative with hey, money. Start, ladies, just a second, just a second. You, you cut out there when you said happy camper. Can you start there one more time real quick? Yeah. So the happy camper mobile bar actually sold in 2021. And so that sale of that business has floated me for, you know, a couple of years. And then Benice is also a real estate agent. So we are very big believers in like, continuing to work the side hustle and being creative with money um, so that, you know, the payoff that's coming will be a little bit more significant and be able to sustain us in this business long term. 
I think you're neat role models in that regard because a scrappy entrepreneur with a simple life, a loving family, and good cocktails, like, <laughs> I think that's a recipe for success right there. <laughs> well, we hope so. That's definitely like, and when we set out for us, this business was definitely, obviously, there's always the goal of making money, but there's so much more to it than that for us. And so luckily, like, we have other goals that are not finance related in terms of building this business. And part of that is it's a lifestyle business for us. So I think a lot of farms are lifestyle businesses. People work their farms because they like living on the farm and they enjoy, you know, where they live and what they do. Um, It also allows us to be moms at the same time. And so you know, we're not paying for childcare because our kids are alongside of us. And sometimes that means, again, that we've grown slower because we're not dedicating all 60 hours, you know, uninterrupted hours into building this business because, you know, we have our kids that need to go to their things and eat lunch and things like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those little buggers, they just keep wanting to be fed every day. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so as we're <clears throat> we're running shy on time here, ladies, and I want to ask you one more question before I let you go, um, and that's kind of your advice to future entrepreneurs like yourselves. And I want to ask it in two different areas. One, what do you wish you would have known about the financial side of growing your business? Um, and the second question is, what what do you want other people to know about working with family? You guys are real life sisters. And I know that introduces some complexity. I've got lots of farmers that are clients that work with family and it definitely introduces some complexity. So what would, what advice would you give our listeners around finances and around working with family? Oh man. Um, on finances, I don't know. Cause I don't know if what, we've done is exactly the right route. I think that we probably have been a little bit shy of doing some of the investments that would have made things a little bit easier on us and grown the business faster, but you can't know what you haven't, you know, it's one of those like hindsight. I don't know what it worked, mm-hmm. have worked out better. Um, I guess just keeping an eye on cash flow and take that food finance boot camp class if you can, because that's what <laughs> helped us figure it out. Um, because you know, Thanks, we knew I'll write your check later. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Um, at the end of the year, we knew we could like predict X revenue, but there was definitely a, a monthly issue there. Um, and that's been big for us. But I do have advice for sure on the on the family aspect. And you know, we put ourselves under a lot of stress in a year that was just in general, or a couple years that have been just in general stressful for people. Um, and when anytime you're stressed, uh, it's harder to work with anyone you're working with, let alone family. But with family, there's that kind of tendency that you can let your hair down and kind of be your worst self because they have to love you anyway. <laughs> and I think we've gotten better about that and setting some more boundaries for ourselves. Like there are some days um, where we will just start out cranky and we know to quit earlier. We'll just be like, this isn't working. See you tomorrow. And we will literally just stop working for the day and table whatever there is or work on separate projects until we can get along uh, to work. 
And we didn't used to do that. We would try to like fight through it and be like, we have to get this done. And then it would just be the most horrible work day and not great for the relationship. And so we've gotten much better about like jumping off the sinking ship earlier um, and then just trying again later. Um, I also think that people shy away from working with family at all. And I think that's a grave mistake because the person, you know, that who I trust most in the world is my sister. And so I know that she has, you know, not only like my back, but she has the best interest of my family and my kids in mind. And so if I explain to her why I don't want to do something, like she'll understand. Um, and she also knows my skill set really well, which, you know, when you know each other really well, it can be a good and bad thing because you know what buttons to push. Um, <laughs> really piss someone off, but you can also know like, okay, she's got that. I don't need to worry about it or, um, you know, really be able to like bring out the best in people too, when you know, you know, kind of some of their strengths and weaknesses. Perfect. And Perfect. for me, I would say in terms of financial advice, um, I would just say plan for and be okay with not making money the first couple of years. I think <laughs> when I, you know, first decided that I would become an entrepreneur at some point in my life, um, I had heard this quote and I just keep replaying it in my mind that like most businesses don't make any money the first five years. And so I had zero expectation of making any money the first five years. And I think having zero expectation has helped a lot. Um, because it has forced me to think about like, okay, but can I live without making any money? And if no, then like I, I need to figure out how to make that money, but it's not through the business. And so the business has been allowed to grow at the rate in which it's going to grow versus us trying to force it to grow to a certain point to pay our bills. Um, and so okay. taking that expectation off has also allowed us so that we don't have to take the loans. A lot of people take the loans, you know, because they have to pay for things because if they don't, then it's coming out of their pocket. Mm -hmm. um, and I know it doesn't work for every single business, but it's, uh, I think it's given us a big sense of relief. <laughs> okay. Um, and then for working with family, I would say I would echo everything that Belinda said. And I would also say that because you guys, because you know your family better, sometimes that it, like she said, it's, it's awesome. Um, I say that like, because we know each other so well, we can fail really, really fast and we get over things really fast. I think that's key. And it, it, it's going to change and be different for every single dynamic, but Blynn and I don't tend to hold grudges. And so mm -hmm. when we get mad at each other, we get mad, we'll like blow up, but then we can come to work the next day and we can be ready to work. Um, we have to take our break, but you know, we're not still mad when we come back. And so I think that's huge is like figuring out how to get to that place where um, you can just go back to work the next day, but then also letting somebody um, knowing that I think the biggest thing is like, I know that a lot of the things that Belinda does that irritates me or, um, 
honestly pisses me off are like she <laughs> I like the phrase, she comes by it naturally, because I know, because I've grown up with her, that she has literally done that since the time she was like three years old or four <laughs> years old, you know? So like, although it's annoying and pisses me off, I know that like, that is just part of who she is and I have to take it or leave it and I don't even try to necessarily change it. And that is the same for me. I probably have more things that piss Belinda off about me and like, but she doesn't try to change me. She, we figure out a way to work with those things because we know that that is like just who we are. Um, and so I really appreciate that. Saying that though, I think it's also important to not get stuck into that rut where you just are like, well, she can't do that because she's never been able to do that or she's mm. always been like that because mm -hmm. I definitely see that happen sometimes with family dynamics and it's like well no we can all try and it's worth having the conversation of like this is irritating me or this is making it me difficult for me to do my job there have been definitely times when you know Belinda has had to come to me and say like this is making it really hard for me to do my job and I know it's not your favorite thing but like I need you to work on that you know and so allowing people to like improve and get better and having those difficult conversations in a respectful way is like, I think the key to success for family businesses. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. The only way we're able to make up fast is that we don't hold back on like talking about things either. Like we have very open communication. Um, and in tech world, they call that radical transparency and family just <laughs> operates like that pretty naturally, or at least ours does. Super. Super. Okay. I'll, I'll keep that in mind when I'm working with my family as well. <laughs> uh, ladies, it has been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you today. And I, I appreciate your time and your insight very, very much. I wish you the best of luck with all the different elements that you've got in your business. And to our listeners, please look up the Simple Goodness Sisters. Have yourself a nice cocktail with some craft syrup from uh, the Simple Goodness Sisters. And I, I think that everybody's life will be just a little incrementally better as a result <laughs> of that. So uh, uh, again, ladies, thank you for the time and for the insight. Uh, I think that you have a really, really lovely business future before you. Thank you so much. And cheers to everyone. We're just, you know, trying to make the world a better place. One happy hour at a time. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha and the Food Finance Institute by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.